While the others had looked battered and woebegone, these rats are sleek and fat. One of them is Karen. <laughs> Sorry. This is... <laughs> one of them one of them is carrying a tiny salt shaker Hello, welcome to Death by Footnote, a show where we all sit down, read works of historical fiction that we've all cooked up, and talk about them. And <laughs> talk about them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the prompt this month, Inventions of the Industrial Revolution. It's week three, yes. Jerem's rounding us out. It's the mm. final story of the month. Spooky is the genre. Yes, for October. We had, uh, at first we, did, we covered the light bulb, it was mm. mine. Quite John spooky. Did, uh, telegraphy with mm. SOS signal. That was, if you missed out on that one, also very good. It's, yeah, so far the spookiness has been firing on all cylinders. It's so, been, Jared, what do you got for us today? Yeah, no, no so. No title still, we, right? You've had a week to think about it. Yes. <laughs> so, Death by I, one. Death I have one. a title. I have a title. What's the title? The title is This Story is About a Girl. <laughs> And a boy. That's the and some rats. <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone's favorite short story. This story is about a boy. Girl, I can rats. see that. It'll be on. Uh, you know, classic Pons. literature. Eric Whitaker is going to sue you for a sequel to his famous song. <laughs> it's just a joke for the deep choir nerds. <laughs> it's 90% of our audience. <laughs> Probably. Uh, <laughs> yes. All right. And so I'm very excited to read this to you all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Let's do this. All right. All right. Ready, so, the girl with a boy. What was the title? The, <laughs> this story is about a girl and a boy and some rats. And, some rats. and also some rats. <laughs> the girl who you'll be reading about for the next 6,000 to 6,500 words. <laughs> Really, that long? <laughs> We're docking points. Twice <laughs> as long. Double the, <laughs> double the. All right. Extra credit is proud. We got on. it. Here we go. Yeah. Lives. Should we keep on that? <laughs> Start over. Here we go. The girl who you'll be reading about for the next six thousand to sixty-five hundred words lives on the fourth floor of the fourth tenement from the corner of Fourth Street and First Avenue in the Lower East Side of Manhattan which is one of the few places in the world with a name that tells you exactly where it is, though it doesn't make much of an attempt to tell you what it's like to live there. The rooms she shares with her mother, father, and grandmother have 50 square feet between them, and this would be much more impressive if that referred to how tall they were instead of how much room there was inside them. And the girl is about 4 foot 9 inches, and even though this refers to how tall she is, it isn't impressive at all. She and these rooms have much in common. Both are fairly shabby through minimal fault of their own. Both are prized by her parents, and both are much smaller than they really should be, given what people expect them to manage. The girl's name is Alishka, and it's pronounced differently than you probably think it is. Instead of Eliska, think of it as Elishka, or if you're one of the unwashed youths, she passes on the street on her way to the market, who finds her pretty, but isn't sure how to communicate his feelings, you might call her Smelishka, but that wouldn't be very polite or mature. It's Wednesday, June 23rd, 1877. The time is nearly 5 p.m., Elishka is putting the finishing touches on her last cigar of the day. You can watch her at it if you promise not to breathe loudly. Her work is quite impressive. Her mother, Mileva, which is pronounced exactly the way you think it is, taught her how to wrap cigars when she was just eight years old, and she's so good at it now that men are fond of theatrically brandishing her work as they shout at each other about investments in mansion parlors along Fifth Avenue. Sealing the paper, she studies it closely with her large blue eyes. It is simply perfect, Drobanek, Mileva murmurs, squeezing her daughter's narrow shoulder and kissing her cheek. Show your babika, and then you must go and meet the rat man. It is Wednesday. Alishka tugs a handkerchief from her apron pocket, wraps her masterpiece carefully in it, and stands, 
Arrayed in a thick quilt in the apartment's second chamber, more a closet than a room, Alishka's Babika examines the scar like a jeweler appraising a ring. The masterpiece is awkward between her old fingers, knobby with arthritis, and Alishka suddenly fears, as she always does, that she'll drop it, and as always, she doesn't. She tugs a pair of spectacles from the folds of her quilt and holds them to her eyes, brown as cured tobacco leaves, and bright in the rugged folds of her face, and peers at the seam that twists along its smooth length. After a moment, she chuckles, a dry sound that is half-cough. Dubra pratze, alligatore, she says. Good work, alligator. Alishka plants a kiss on her wrinkled forehead, takes the cigar, and returns to the workroom where Mileva is packing cigars, her own day's work, into a small box, which she places on a high shelf next to a charming little clock of intricate make. The trap is in its usual place, Strobinak. Hurry to the door. He'll be here any minute. I will box your cigars, she says, and be back soon. On the 15th of October, 1875, Mileva sat on a rat. When Jan, uh, Alishka's father, returned home from work that evening, he was sent right back into the street with specific instructions that he was not to return until he had purchased a trap. And purchased one he did. After hours of wandering Manhattan, he stumbled upon McShandy's Company, a shop in the Upper East Side that, according to the sign over its door, specialized in the utter annihilation of verminous species and their relatives. The lump of metal he bought there for 60 cents was, as the storekeeper's assistant assured him, a modern marvel, a trap designed to catch several rodents at once. He lugged it home and placed it just inside the door, exactly where he imagined rats would enter their apartment. Every week, a cart from McShandy's rattled down 4th Street to exchange full traps for empty ones, and Alishka was expected to ensure that the Hayek family trap was ready when he came. Today, the trap was especially heavy. Alishka's arms burn as she carefully navigates the tenement's narrow, dark stairs. One of them is slippery. The foul smell emanating from it suggests that someone has recently vomited there. Voices barge through the thin walls around her. The sound of laughter, a baby crying, a man shouting in German. She remembers to jump the missing step on the staircase between the first and second stories, avoids the eyes of the men leering at her from where they slouch against the corridor walls on the ground floor, and then she's outside, blinking rapidly, and there's a man who grumbles some in Italian as he pushes roughly past her, and a flock of filthy boys who pause their game, or rather what she can only assume to be a game, as no dice or coins are evident, but they're all crouched in a circle, to gawk at her. Everything is noise and confusion. It is too early for shops to be closing or pubs to fill, but people still cram the constricted road. Alishka tucks herself against the warm bricks of the tenement facade, where she remains unnoticed until a handful of buttons is shoved under her nose, and someone says, Buy your trap! She looks at the buttons, among which glint a few pennies, stunned, then squints upward. A boy with a smudged face and hair that sticks up from his head like bristles on a paintbrush stares back at her. Are you deaf or something? He says, then crouches down and repeats, exaggerating each word. Buy your trap! I, me, your trap? Alishka stares at him stonily, then says without blinking, I understand English and speak it better than anyone in my building. We got, we got here in 1868, so we're not new. And my hearing is excellent, thank you. And no. But this is at least 15 cents in sellable buttons, the boy says, scowling. I've been looking for them all afternoon. Then you've wasted your time. The trap is not for sale. She pulls it closer to herself as she says this, and the trap bumps around a bit as the rats inside it squeak and jostle one another. The boy's expression grows suddenly desperate at this sound. He dumps the buttons back into the pocket of his torn trousers, and when his hand re-emerges, it's tightly balled into a fist around something. I don't want to give this to you, he says in a strained sort of voice, but I will if I have to. Only brutes hit girls. Alishka returns, and if you punch me, I'll rip the skin off your face. People think I keep my nails long to wrap cigars better, but I actually grow them out in case I have to deal with monkeys like you. The boy glances at her fingernails. They look very long and rather sharp. I don't want to punch you, blockhead, he says, then leans forward. Alishka shrinks back with a frown and whispers, This is just a real dollar, and I don't want anyone to see it, okay? The boy's breath is choking, and Alishka can't suppress a cough. <clears throat> no, really, see? The boy opens his fingers a fraction, just enough to allow her to glimpse the coin in his palm and the wings of the eagle stamped on it. It's real. I found it in the street outside of a barber shop. 
Alishka hesitates. As anyone in the Lower East Side can tell you, a dollar is a good deal of money. She only makes four of them in a week herself. Her Otek would be so pleased to see it, but then... Where is the trap that keeps your mama safe, he would ask, and she would have to tell him that she'd sold it to a dirty street boy. That's all right, he'd say. My daughter is so clever. But she would detect his disappointment in the way he set his fork down after supper and the length of the story he told her before bed. She couldn't bear that. So she shakes her head. You can't be serious, the boy mutters, throwing his hands in the air and standing up. He turns to walk away, then doesn't. Instead, he sighs, tucks his thumbs into his trousers, and sinks back down into a crouch. Okay, go. I just need the rats. You can keep the trap, all right? He pauses, gauging her reaction to this development, then continues. Look, come with me to my nest, hand over the rats, and you get your trap back. That's it. And he bites his lip and stops. Alishka stares at him. Fine, he says, fine. And you can have the dollar. Just give me the rats and keep your trap and take the dollar. Where is your nest? He points. Four blocks that way. I'll follow you. But don't try anything. Anything funny. Don't worry, I won't. The boy grows talkative as they walk. Alishka, arms aching with the weight of the trap, listens as he tells her his name. Cuthbert Frackle, though everyone calls him Cubby. Where he's from, a place in England called Womburn, and why he ran away from home after his family moved to Manhattan. Conveying this last bit of information requires the explanation of a good deal of complicated family matters, like his father's propensity for coming home violently drunk and bashing the tar out of his mother, his older sister, and himself, his grandmother's desire to send him off to a boys' school in Warwick, the old hag, he mutters, and his mother's affair with their tenement neighbor, a German named Johannes Gug, and this keeps silence from settling between the two till they stop outside of a derelict little building, smashed between a miserable store that molders under the sign Craglin's Quality Collectibles and a butcher shop. And Cubby makes a sweeping gesture with his hand like a farmer showing off 80 acres of flourishing wheat and says with a burst of pride, What do you think? Silence. Ah, never mind. It's cozier on the inside. Come on. Cozier is not among the words that enter Alishka's mind as they pick their way through a rotting foyer and up a desiccated staircase. The building appears to have been deserted some time ago, abandoned by a careless owner to crumble quietly in the heart of the Manhattan slums. When they reach the landing, a gloomy stretch of decaying timber, Cubby puts out his arm, stopping Alishka. Only step where I do, he whispers loudly. Nest is on the other side. Alishka nods. She strains her eyes to trace his movements in the gloom. One leap forward, half a step to the right, one step forward, a sort of staggering diagonal jump to the left, two normal steps, and then he's safe. She takes a deep breath. The rats in the trap are getting increasingly rambunctious. She hopes they don't jostle around too much. One leap forward, half a step to the right, one step forward, a sort of staggering diagonal jump to the left, two normal steps, safe. Wow, Cubby says. That was impressive. (laughs) Thank you, Alishka replies. Her heart is beating very fast. I'm more agile than the average person. It was nothing. He shrugs. Here's the nest, he declares, and throws open the splintering door behind him. It's remarkably clean. The embers of the setting sun ooze through a dusty window, dyeing the swept floorboards a rusty red, and there's a washstand in the corner with a cracked pitcher on it. The bookcase near the door even has a book on it. A single grimy volume with a title on the spine that if Alishka could read it, might have spooked her, but she couldn't, so it didn't. Within the walls of this strangely tidy room, the only sign of abject poverty is the pile of rags in the corner, which she assumes serves as a bed for the boy. The whole building used to be a morgue, Cubby says, excited by this. They put all the dead people down below us, and this is where the mortician lived. Why did he leave it? Ah, same reason they all do. Moved uptown. Are you hungry? I'm fine, thanks. Suit yourself. He whistles a bizarre little tune after saying this, then reaches for the trap, which Alishka holds pressed against her chest. Oh, right. Dollar. Are you sure? It's just, well, it's a lot of money, and and I don't come by many of them. Are you sure you don't want the buttons? She looks at him. Fine, fine, take it. And set the trap on the floor, won't you? They sound like they're getting desperate. 
By they, he meant the rats, and he couldn't have been more right. The rats had started to grow restless as soon as Alishka had entered the building, and they're now rattling around and squeaking uproariously. She stows the money swiftly in her apron pocket, then lays the device on the floor. Cubby falls to his knees immediately, wrenching open the panel atop the trap. Come on out now, there's some good fellows, he says. The girl hasn't got you anymore, you're free. No shoving now. You haven't killed anyone, have you? Steady on. Hello! Aratisthenes! The rats, bless them, have burst out of the trap's chamber and are now everywhere at once, scurrying across the floorboards on tiny feet, probing corners of the room with their noses, standing up on their hind legs to better appraise their new surroundings. One, the chunky rascal with the splotch of white on his flank, Cubby has addressed as Aratisthenes, has leapt up Cubby's arm and now perches on his shoulder, gazing sternly at Alishka. Caught in a trap, eh? Cubby says, that should teach you to run away. No matter, I'm glad you're back. They've missed you at the pantry. And with friends, what shall we teach them to do? Alishka's observing this reunion with feelings approaching horror when she hears a rustling coming from the bookshelf, and out from a hole in the lowest shelf pops two rough-looking rats, one with a notched ear, the other with no ears at all, laboriously dragging, but how is it possible? A whole loaf of bread, which they deposit in the middle of the floor. <laughs> I'll thank you, Aristotle and Epicurat, Cub- Cubby says graciously. And please help yourselves to some before you return. The two rats stand on their hind legs, bow, and tear chunks of the loaf with their hands before dashing back to the bookshelf. Aratisthenes, could you help our newest comrades feed themselves? <laughs> but politely now... The rodent twitches its whiskers and plunges to the loaf. Alishka watches, transfixed, as Aratisthenes gathers up the three other rats from the trap, leads them to the bread, and begins breaking small pieces off of it, handing them around like a nurse doling out bowls of soup in a hospital. Amazing, isn't it? Cubby says, evidently delighted by her amazement. And that's not the tenth of it. Rats are incredibly clever. One need only know how to teach them. Watch this! He whistles again, a different series of notes this time, and half a moment later, five more rats burst from the hole in the bookshelf. While the others had looked battered and woebegone, these rats are sleek and fat. One of them is... (laughs) Sorry. This is... One of them... One of them is carrying a tiny salt shaker... I'm sorry, I lost my composure. Okay. <laughs> What's going on? All right. Okay. <laughs> what we're talking about here? A tiny salt shaker. Uh, tiny. One of them is carrying a tiny salt shaker. Behold, Cubby declares in a ringmaster voice, the amazing, the marvelous, spectacular quintet. He slips a brass whistle from his trouser pocket and blows a note. The rats plunge into action. The one with the salt shaker dumps a measure of salt on the floor. The one with the salt shaker dumps a measure of salt on the floor. One of the others springs upon it, stands on its hind legs, and launches into a soft shoe tap dance. One of the others One of the others springs upon it. I'm crying. One of the others springs upon it, stands on its hind legs, and launches into a soft shoe tap dance routine. It is excellent. Alishka is enthralled. But wait, there's more. The tumbling rodents. Two rats jump forward, tilting forward into headstands. Two others climb on top of them, balancing on the upturned feet of their fellows. A final rat, smaller and more nimble than the rest, swarms to the top of this pile of rats, balancing spectacularly on one foot like a rodent cupid. Alishka bursts out laughing. Cubby beams so fiercely, his face nearly splits in half. He's certain her laughter is the most beautiful sound he has ever heard. But... How? How can this happen? She sputters sometime later, wiping tears from her cheeks. Bringing food, performing, cleaning? The performance has concluded, and the the spectacular quintet has taken a bow and scampered away. She and he are both sitting cross-legged on the floor, and this last word is directed at the two rats, now sweeping the salt into a tiny dustpan. Rats are capable of anything, Cubby says, handing her a hunk of bread, which she accepts. Everything. I don't even know what they can't do except cook. I've tried to teach them that, and they're absolutely awful at it. 
But isn't it incredible? But where do they live? How are they here? How many of them are there? Here, including the three new ones from your trap. 26. 26? I've taught some of them to do different things. There's the five performers you just saw. Then there's seven that gather and distribute food. You saw two of them. Then six more that wash clothes and clean the nest. And then there's a group of eight that can read. <laughs> and they're learning how to perform life-saving surgery. <laughs> surgery? Yeah, Pericles. He's the smartest among them. I think he's smarter than the president. He found that book over there. He gestures to the single volume on the bookshelf. And next thing you know, they're dragging dead people into the morgue rooms below us and cutting into them, exploring how they work and all that. I think they'll revolutionize the hospital industry around here. God knows most of those doctors aren't much smarter than rats. Alicia's stunned. She looks toward the trap, sitting empty in the middle of the room. I can't believe that we treat rats the way we do, she murmurs. <laughs> well, that's just what humans do, though, isn't it? We don't know much except how to trap and kill. We do it to rats, we do it to each other. Killing's easier than teaching, especially when people don't want to learn, is it? Takes less time, anyway. And what, if what, and what if what we want to teach them just isn't worth learning? Then we'd have to confront the fact that our knowledge is really just opinion, and that's more trouble than it's worth. But we don't always feel good about killing things, so sometimes we just settle for trapping them instead. The creatures we trap will die, miserable, desperate, and afraid, but at least we feel better about ourselves for not killing them outright. That's why we made the delusion trap, you see. The delusion trap? Come here. Cubby says. He stands, lights a lamp, it's getting dark, then kneels beside the trap. Alishka scoots closer. The trap glints eerily in the lamplight. This is the door. He begins pointing to a dark hole in its side. You bait the trap with cheese, so the rodent is tempted to enter. Inside, there's a seesaw, though, so when they approach the cheese, the door shuts behind them. Now, in the dark, the only way to go is forwards, which admits them into this cell, and they must remain there until they die. And when they move ahead to the room, though, the seesaw tilts back, opening the door again to emit another. He demonstrates all this as he explains it, definitely manipulating the device to illustrate his explanation. So they're kept alive, which makes us feel much better about ourselves. We're not killing them, after all. Plus, the trap can hold multiple rats at a time, which is what makes this such a modern marvel. But that's but something that most people don't know and his voice drops lower, is that rats, when trapped in a small enough space, start to panic. And when they do, they'll go into a killing frenzy. Caged in the cell, they'll lash out with tooth and claw, murdering one another until only one rat is left. And that rat will survive on the remains of the others until it finally dies. Well, that's terrible, Alishka gasps. It's New York, Cubby says. <laughs> All the talk of making your fortune in the new world. It's bait for the trap, you see. It's the delusion that draws people in. And we're the rats suckered into this hideous place where we've got no light besides the stuff that filters through the cracks between bars and nothing to eat but each other. But here's the truth. There's no limit to what rats can do. They just need to be shown that they can do it. But, Alishka protests, we can escape the trap. My papa's saving money to buy a house in Massachusetts somewhere by the sea. He says we almost have enough. Cubby shakes his head. Well, that's the delusion, don't you see? You're in the trap. But something thumps below them, and the harsh sound of men's voices seeps through the floorboards, speaking in German. Time for you to go, Cubby whispers. Why? Alishka whispers back. Some men sleep downstairs every night, thieves, I think, but they talk about murdering people sometimes. I don't even, I, I don't think they know I live here. That's why I rig traps in the landing in case they come up here one day. Alishka nods. How do I get out? Follow me. He crosses to the window, taking care to tread silently. Alishka picks up the trap and follows him. He undoes the window clasp and with a bit of effort throws up the sash. The two children peer into the darkening street below. There's a pile of rags underneath this window. You just jump out and it'll break your fall, Cubby says. You're joking. The boy shakes his head. Alishka is not easily frightened. She shoves the trap into Cubby's chest, blinks several times, tucks a strand of hair under her kerchief, and swings, and swings one leg over the sill. Her foot dangles into empty space. She shoves away her fear and swings over the other, slipping through the window. Whoosh. Her dress billows up as she falls. Her stomach drops through her knees. Then, thud. A soft one. Are you all right? Comes a w worried whisper from the darkness above. Yes, she replies. Her knees ache and pain flares from her ankle, but she can stand. 
I'm dropping the trap now. Whoosh, clang. Got it, er, got it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Alishka, my daughter, where have you been? Are you hurt? What happened? Mileva cries when Alishka returns, clutching the trap. I'm all right, Mama, she gasps as Mileva's hug crushes the breath from her. I'm not hurt. I sold the rats. See? Mileva stares at the dollar in her daughter's hand. Drobinak, how is this done? There was a boy. He wanted the rats, so I sold him them. A boy? A good boy, Mama. A good boy with a dollar in his pocket? There's no such thing in Manhattan, Alishka. You must be more careful. Yes, Mama. Mileva releases her daughter and hurries to the cupboard, fetching from it a rind of cheese and a loaf of black bread. I'm just grateful you're not hurt. And your father, he's been gone so long. Where is Papa? He went to look for you after supper. He was so excited to tell you the news. The news? Oh, Alishka, it's a miracle, and I will pop if I don't tell you, but he was looking forward to telling you, and I can't deny him that. Who's there? Who is it? She says this in response to a strident rapping on the door. Open up, comes a severe voice distorted by a thick German accent through the door. Open up now, for the love of God. Um, I don't know how to do a German accent. Open up now, for the love of God. <laughs> Who are you breaking down my door at night? Challenges Mileva, placing herself between Alishka and the entrance and making no effort to open it. Mileva, Milasek, please, says a familiar voice. Jan! Mileva gasps and dashes to the door, flinging it open to admit three men, two of whom support the third between them, as he is not apparently able to stand. They stumble through the doorway, crowding the cramped room. Lay him here, Mileva instructs, shoving stools and the table aside to clear space on the floor. We found him close to the butcher shop, not far away, one of the men says. He's pale under his broad mustache. Blood, dark and awful, drenches his waistcoat. Stabbed, says the other grimly. The brim of his bowler hat plunges his eyes into shadow, losing much blood. Danke, says Mileva. Now go, you're stealing his air. They tip their hats, mumbling apologies, and shuffle out. Mileva, Mileva, Jan mumbles. I didn't find her. No need. She found her way home on her own, Mileva replies. Now shut up. Elishka, fetch the Sunday linen. It will be the cleanest. Elishka, stunned. The room is full of an odd, choking smell. Papa, she says. Linen girl, move. Yes, Mama. Her babika is awake, alert, as she enters the second room. What is happening? She croaks. It's Papa. He's hurt, Elishka says. Her hands shake as she digs through a trunk. The Sunday linen. Where was it? A muffled cry brings her racing back into the front room. She's never heard her father make such a sound. It fills her with a desperate despair. He's laying on the floor with his shirt, soaked through with blood that is black in the lamplight, folded open. His head lolls to the side. Mileva is bending over him, pressing a rag to his pale chest. She snatches the linen from Alishka's arms without looking at her. Her face is gleaming with sweat as she tears a strip of cloth from Alishka's Sunday dress. Bright red blossoms across the fabric as she presses it to the ugly wound under Jan's ribs. He suddenly seizes her hand, gazing at her with a smoldering intensity. No... Hospital, Mileva, he heaves. Keep the money for Massachusetts. Take Alishka there. You're not dying, you stupid man, Mileva says roughly. And of course I'm not wasting money on a bumbling bilbic of a doctor. Lay back and let this wound stop bleeding. Alishka, Alishka. Yes, Papa, Alishka says, hating her voice for the way it trembles. I'm right here. He smiles at this, then squeezes his eyes shut as pain ripples through his body. A tear slips out of the corner of one of them, disappearing into his dark hair. Alishka, my brave Brusak, I have the greatest news for you. Can you hear me? It seems like you're suddenly far away. I'm right here, right beside you, she says, falling to her knees and taking one of his bloodied hands in both of her own. I'm so sorry, Papa. I should not have stayed out so late. I should have come home. No apologies, no apologies. I will always look for you, no matter how dark the night or late the hour, always. But my news. Yes, what is it? Are you sure you can hear me? I, I cannot hear myself. Yes, yes, Papa, I can. But he's quiet and still, terribly still. Papa, Alishka whispers, Slizim Vas, I hear you. Mileva has bandaged him. She wipes her blood from her arms and, uh, and sits back on her heels. Her face is taut, like a guitar string that might snap if it is tuned even half a step higher. She remains in this attitude for a moment, then leans forward. She brushes damp curls from her husband's forehead, kissing it gently. 
Alishka, she says quietly, my daughter, he has lost a lot of blood, too much for him to remain awake. His body is resting now. This is my fault, Mama. I should have come home. It is the fault of whatever filthy swine attacked him and no one else's. Now bring me a blanket. When she does, Mileva tucks it beneath his chin tenderly in the same way she used to do for Alishka when she was much younger. She watches him for a moment, then fetches the clock from the high shelf. His news, she begins, but Alishka shakes her head. He'll tell me his news tomorrow, she says firmly. He would want you to know. He would want to tell me for himself, Mama. Very well, daughter. They sit in the front room for hours. Every hour and a half, Mileva rises from her stool to replace his bandage with a fresh strip of fabric torn from one of their Sunday dresses. Alishka uh, watches. Thoughts clog her head in a confused jumble. Every rattling breath Jan takes shivers in the suffocating chamber. At 1.36 in the morning, a full ten seconds elapses between breaths, catapulting Alishka's heart into her throat. They change his bandages, and his breathing eases. When the clock strikes three, Mileva, exhausted by a full day's work, is asleep, her head tilted forward on her chest. Alishka swaps out the bandages. She can't bring herself to look at the wound as she does so. At half past three, an idea has taken root in the churning mess of her thoughts. A desperate idea. She grabs the trap and sprints into the night. <sighs> what? You! Cubby stammers stupidly, scratching his head and narrowing his eyes in the lamplight. What's going on? It's like four o'clock! 338. You said your rats can perform life-saving surgery. Oh Alishka repeats, God. breathless from her sprint across town. <laughs> well, I think they can. Pericles seems confident. I need them to perform one tonight. <laughs> now. <laughs> My papa is dying, she says. And finally, she bursts into tears. Cubby pats her arm awkwardly. The rats tend to keep irregular sleep schedules. I'll see if they're up. He whistles a mournful note, low and long. There's a long moment of silence. Pit-pat, 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 pit-pat. A rat emerges from the bookshelf. Pericles, thank God. <laughs> the rat is larger than the others. Uh, gray fur clings around his whiskers. He stops in the middle of the room, gazing at the two children with a sad expression. Where do you live? Cubby asks her. I don't remember, sorry. The fourth tenement from the, fourth, uh, the fourth tenement from the corner of 4th Street and 1st Avenue, replies Alishka, wiping her eyes. On the fourth floor. Pericles, Cubby addresses the rat. There's a man who needs your help. He's been, uh, stabbed, Aliska says, just below the ribs. The rat's ears flick once. Okay, that's a good thing, Cubby says. Not him being stabbed, I mean, that, that, it's just the ear flick. That usually means they know what to do. What? The rat thumps its tail once, twice, thrice. He needs 30 minutes. That's what it means. <laughs> we wait here for 30 minutes, then you can go back home. Pericles vanishes back through the bookshelf. And that's it, says Cubby. Now we wait. They do. Alishka paces the room. They'll just do something to him? Cubby shrugs. Well, I don't know. They'll heal him as best they know how. I don't really know what they'll do, honestly. Have you ever done this before? Have they? Actually, yes. Remember how I told you that I ran away from home a while ago? Yes, I do. Pericles found me the night that I left. Old Dad had been in an especially angry mood, so I was in pretty bad shape. He led me here, patched me up. I was unconscious for most of the process, so I don't know exactly what they did. But here I am, good as new. I think they lived here when it was a morgue and observed the mortician at work. Maybe they were even here before the mortician and they taught him his trade. Who knows? You didn't teach them? Cubby laughs. You think I know anything about medicine? <laughs> I taught every rat I brought here how to do things. But I didn't bring Pericles here. He brought me. Alishka thinks about this for a long moment. Cubby, for his part, flops back onto the pile of rags, knitting his fingers behind his head as he gazes at the ceiling. Cubby, she says at last. Yeah, my papa has some news for me, and I think it's that, well, let's just say, if my family had the money to move to Massachusetts, would you, would you come with us? He roars onto his side to look at Alishka. Escape the trap, huh? He chuckles. <laughs> I can't leave the rats. Perhaps they could come too? He shakes his head. Impossible. Well, no, it's not. And you can't just live in this moldy old morgue forever, squeezing a pittance of life out of three hours of sunlight a day and listening to men talk about murder in the rooms beneath you every night. 
Cubby looks at her. She gets the feeling that he wants to say something, but isn't sure how to say it, or what it might mean if he tries to. Eventually, he simply says, Yes, I can, Claus. And don't talk so loud. You might wake him up. She wipes her face furiously. More tears had sprung from her eyes during her outburst and demands, It's been 30 minutes, hasn't it? Yes, Cubby mutters. Yes, I think it has. It's Thursday, June 24th, 1877. Alishka has been home for several hours. The terror of what she might find in the apartment kept her pacing the wretched corridor outside her door after she returned for nearly an hour until she screwed up her courage and eased it open. She slipped inside as quietly as she could manage so as not to disturb Mileva, who did not wake. Just before the sky above First Avenue started to pale, and the streets crowd again with people off to work. There were no rats to be seen. In fact, everything was exactly as it had been before, save for Jan's breathing. This, to her tentative relief, had steadied. Whatever Pericles had done, worked. For it was Jan who woke his wife, mother, and daughter, Alishka had been pretending to be asleep, that morning. He was not merely healed. His smile was somehow brighter, his laugh richer. He seemed ten years younger. What a shock! Poor Mileva, she was so thoroughly stunned by this transformation that she could not utter a word for a full minute. And how Jan laughed, good-naturedly, of course, at her bewilderment, until she wrinkled her nose and scowled an apology out of him. But the tenderness of the embrace in which she seized him afterward left no doubt as to whether the offense had been forgiven. But what of his news? He must first put on a clean shirt and trousers and brush his hair and beard. Fortunately for Alishka, who is bursting to hear about it, his renewed energy renders this work easy, and within a moment, he's back in the little room beaming. He's telling Alishka now. Jan was on 65th Street along 5th Avenue, working on a magnificent clock owned by THE Mr. William Backhouse Astor Jr. He had just finished when Mr. Astor had approached him. Him, Mr. Jan Hayek, to complete his to compliment his work. The two fell to talking, and Mr. Astor asked him a great deal of questions about his family. They seem like the best wife and daughter a man could ask to spend his life with, Mr. Astor said. Do they have a proper home? Well, yes, proper enough, Jan had replied and described their situation on the fourth tenement house from the corner of First Avenue and Fourth Street. Now, when he had finished, Mr. Astor fell into a peculiar silence. After a moment, he then said, Well, Mr. Hayek, it's clear to me that you are a hard-working man who cares very much about his family. I admire that. You've given your wife and daughter a roof over their heads, and now you shall give them a better one. Here. He pulled the key from his pocket. There is a house in Chatham, Massachusetts, on a property that overlooks the sea. This key opens its door. I want you to have it. The the key, Jan had repeated, flummoxed. Alishka laughs as Jan describes this, and he grins before continuing. The house. And that, my little poklat, is my news, Jan proclaims, rising from his chair and throwing his arms wide. We're moving to Massachusetts. We shall live by the sea and never return to this city again. At this, for the third time in a matter of hours, Alishka bursts into tears. The morning sun glimmers on the floor. The cigar work has been put away, at least for the morning, and Mileva is using the white flower she's been hiding under the bed for Christmas to make Vanica. The horror of the night before has been banished, and all is well. As for the wound, no one thought to look for it then, and no one has thought of it since. No one, that is, except for Lishka who cannot banish thoughts of Cuthbert Frackle and his rats completely from her mind, even after she and her family moved to the house in Chatham, which, true to Mr. Astor's promise, is a lovely cottage by the sea. By day, she makes the finest cigars available in the Cape for the highest of prices. At night, she lies awake, listening to the waves murmuring along the shore, and imagines how cold Cubby must be in his odd nest. As years pass, she tries to picture what he must look like in his advanced age and whether he's ever found work or a way out of the trap. As a result, when posters appear around Chatham advertising Frackle's Specratular Quintet in the summer of her 17th year, she is the first to purchase a ticket. The end. <laughs> and that is the story of a girl and a boy and some rats. And some rats. <laughs> <laughs> Man. I kept waiting for the spooky to show. <laughs> yeah, where was the spooky part? <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh man, 
the dad like is just a like a human suit of rats. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the I rats puppeting the dad. Like got it. I'm like, yeah, this is gonna be and... like one of the best ending reveals I've ever had <laughs> just in my rats life. Wearing a, a papa suit. <laughs> <laughs> that genuinely would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think Industrial Revolution New York is spooky enough? Yeah, it's pretty we spooky. just, you know, <laughs> I, just, I just was on, on my seat, like, waiting for You're like, the, where's the, sp- what's like, the spooky oh, pin going to drop? Was, this yeah. is about to get nasty. Yeah, it's like, oh, German murderers. No. Yeah, here come the murders. Nope, murder is nothing. <laughs> oh, okay. Death, Hold up. Yeah, I mean, he was no. stabbed. Here we go. The rats are now <laughs> no. performing life. Saving surgery. (laughs) I mean, that is spooky. (laughs) Well, you say, like, no one looks at the wound or thinks to look at the wound. Like, (laughs) so we were like, oh, it's like, this is where the shoe is going to (laughs) drop. Yeah. So it's like, why include that detail? I just can't help but feel like you just, (laughs) guys, oh my gosh, (laughs) let us to water and then. (laughs) We're like, how dare you think about drinking water? Oh no! Okay, okay. Oh, it so, was so funny. I, so, it was so funny. I, this is my first time reading this out loud, right? <laughs> and as I read it back in my brain, as I'm like going through the edits and stuff, I'm like, "This is not funny." Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> but it reading it out loud funny. made all the difference. It's like I, looking ahead to what I had to read next, is like I, I literally can't read this out loud. This is. I this is ridiculous. Specific you were with the dates and the times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the literary voice was like so prominent and so fun. Yeah, the matter of fact, like yeah. these are the facts. Uh so it's very it was just like <laughs> it was a great comedy. <laughs> so I was just waiting for the turn the whole time. Yeah. So, Oh but, my gosh! You know, hey, this is a that's a that's a genre lesson, right? <laughs> you got to write the genre. Uh, but the rat race, because it's like otherwise, yeah, it would have been right. such a great story had I not expected it to be a like a like horror or spooky or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's like I wish I could have experienced it without that expectation hanging over. Maybe that made it funnier though. I, yeah, maybe. It's like the tension of the like tension when of, is it gonna oh, get Oh man, spooky? why is this? <laughs> and instead, it's going this completely different direction. Where it's like what? Dancing rats. The salt shaker. The little impressive. salt shaker. I'm imagining a salt shaker like this large. <laughs> oh my. With his, his tiny little rat hands. Um, oh. Yeah, so, okay, so my original concept for this story was actually going to be to have, um, was actually going to be to have Alishka work in a textile factory in okay. Manhattan. And this was going to be a much more conventional kind of take on the Industrial Revolution, kind of this pessimistic look mm. at immigrants right. and their suffering in Manhattan. and yeah, yeah, Exploitation, yeah, at the, at the hands of the cruel corporate overlords, that kind of thing. So she was actually going to get sucked into the textile machine oh. um, and die. And that, that was going to be the initiating, um, so sort of the, the incentive, the impetus for the story, right? Mm. Incident, um, and then the inciting, thank you. And then, um, and then her family was going, was of course gonna be distraught by this loss. And then they were going to hire a medium to conduct a seance in the factory mm. to see if they Stereo, could get in touch with her yeah. spirit. And instead of summoning her ghost, they were going to summon the spirit of the machine. And they were going to talk to the spirit of the of the textile machine. And that was going to be the story. And they were going to, like, talk to it. And it was going to be real spooky and freaky. And like, yeah, that sounds uh, very spooky. Yeah. And then we got here. <laughs> to rats. You see, because I found... I, I was doing some more research into, like, the Industrial Revolution. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, that's fine. But it's kind of a... It's the lofty it's concept. And maybe it's too ambitious. So then I went back to the drawing board and found the delusion rat trap and was like, that's pretty spooky. You know, there's this idea that like... Well, and that's the other part. When you were talking about the rats eating each other, 
there's like one rat remains. Yeah. I'm like waiting for it to come back. Yeah. And I'm just like, like oh yeah, the dad's gonna be the one rat. He killed everybody, <laughs> and he's that's how they yeah. get to Massachusetts or like something. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that was very spooky. It's spooky, yeah, and that's actually a thing. Like when they're in the delusion trap, they actually do kill each other. They go into a killing frenzy. They'll they'll eat each other's brains, and it's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, horrifying stuff. And that's like, ooh, when you like take that, and it's like, oh wow, that's awful. And now it's like, this is New York, and people are eating each other in New York, and it's a big trap, and that's crazy. And and then it's and they escape, and they escape. They made it out. The rats save the day. Uh, I don't know if I just if I lacked courage to do what was needed. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be true. Seal the deal. Because, like, you can see all the pieces are there. You know what I mean? All the spooky pieces are there for the spooky ending. Uh, the spooky never <laughs> <laughs> The spooky, because we're there for a denouement. Yeah. And the spooky Bring the never came. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Instead of the spooky happening, you're like, and the dad's wound. It was good. <laughs> it's just gone. The mysticism. It it's the mystique no, of the for rat. I, for me, it was... Because, like, I get that, and that's cool. And weird and creepy in the way. But, but it was the after. It was just like, and no one thought to look for the wound. Yeah. Like yeah, it's like, okay. But she He's did once. Rat. And she was like, no, it's still good. <laughs> <laughs> and, by the way, the rats, they turned into a traveling like, show. Like I Everybody wins. <laughs> Yeah. And so it's like, why did you go to the <laughs> trouble of setting up the super spooky elements? And like, the other thought I had was like murdering Germans. <laughs> like the dad's ears were gonna twitch or something yeah, like that. Yeah, just something end, tiny. Like, whenever he said yes or something like that. Oh my gosh, did you see like the rats have actually like entered his body? They're like, <laughs> yeah. central. It, yeah. And it could be like the Vegas suggestion suggestion, and I think we would still be like, yeah. Yeah, like it's just an ear, just like, and then we'd be like, oh, oh, he's a rat. Instead, everyone's just everyone's happy. They go to chase the Massachusetts man. They're they're living a good life. You're throwing a Deus Ex Machina. Some rich guys, like, by the way, here's the house. Here's the house, and it's William Astor Jr., who is a terrible human being, by the way. This is so people will probably you guys. Hi. It, it, this is not supposed to, like, you know, expunge the horrible things that William Backhouse Astor Jr. did to people and his <laughs> poor wife, who is not loyal to him. He's a terrible person. And also, this promotes, this perpetuates the American dream, which is maybe not good. Because yeah. it's like, oh, <laughs> the rich guy will just come along and give you everything you ever want. So, is, you know, America's a great place. This is what I think Spooky happened. Is at a different level? Uh, <laughs> see, it's too cliche to make it pessimistic, though. And and I think I was, like, psyching myself out. Because everybody not, goes oh, there. Where what, you're like, immigrants in New York, yeah. it's going to be sad. Oh, you know? my gosh. Rats performing life-saving surgery and having some spooky ending. Very cliche. <laughs> Taking over a father's body. <laughs> Here's what I think happened. We said, hey, let's all sit down and write a 3,000 word story. <laughs> and then you got to, what, 6,500 words, 6,000 words, and you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> this is. Uh, uh, and then and then you're like worried about it being cliche. I think you're worried about the length. And then you're like, we got to wrap this up. In, <laughs> in some surprising way. Whoop. We're just and, gonna end it. And I think you got scared of of the real ending for this story. That's what I believe. You spooked yourself. You spooked yourself <laughs> out of the story. All right, spook. all right. So um, I would say, first of all, I, I would say that this is a real ending. I, I, I think, I think, you know, like it's it's weird. It's definitely weird, though. Yeah. It's and but it's, how it does we, match the weirdness of the whole. But the but day, what ending the, would be like more the, sinister and satisfying. So I don't mind that. Like, it doesn't have to be everyone is is dead at the end or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What gets me is, like, the random rich guy giving them the house. Yeah. That's the literary like, hang-up I have. <laughs> Where did this like, come from? <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah. It would be cool. I mean, it does create suspense because Papa's, like, keeps saying, I have news. I have, I have news. news. I have news. And so we're like, what's the news? And the news is, like... But it didn't have to be a rich guy. They could have just gotten the house somehow, too. Yeah, and, and like if it had been something that like the dad did that earned him the house, like why did he get stabbed? You know, like it could be connected to that or something. Yeah. So maybe. that's the. So yeah, I don't mind that it's not like a spooky, creepy ending. 
Uh, I think that the rich guy is my hangup. <laughs> the rich guy, I I agree. Who, who you say is a really awful human being in Which real life? Cool to find out if like he was a rat. That see <laughs> that would be interesting. Rat. So the um, he's the rat who eats everyone. <laughs> yeah, he eats everyone. The, the angle... And then the dad eats him and takes his house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is the angle because he has was... the new rat tendencies. Yeah. yeah, the angle that I was trying to like go for with the rats, and this is probably actually I think this is the the lynch like the the clincher here, where it's like. Uh, maybe I was leaning too hard into this thing and it kind of ran against the grain of the mm. story as it should have developed. But I wanted the rats to be like um, like the people that nobody thinks about, right? They're like right. the, the mm. trash, the mm. vermin, mm. you know? And that's like similar. I wanted to make that into sort of a commentary on immigrants, right? Where it's like people yeah. write them off, you know, and, and kind of degrade them. And it's like, well, actually, they're fully capable of doing amazing things right, right? intelligent and they can it's learn. wrong to subject them to something so that's why the rats became the deus ex machina because it's like oh well these people right now that uh that the idea is there where it's like yeah. they can do anything and they fixed it and that's good well and i think that came through because i don't oh, think yeah. the rats were the deus ex machina i just think it was the rich guy it's just the rich guy that feels it's just weird. the rich guy yeah that totally makes sense <laughs> Yeah, but especially because, yeah, again, his, he's not a great guy Historical anyway. stuff, the uh, delusion, mousetrap, very cool industrial revolution invention. Yeah, it's very unique. It's like a very like, unconventional one, so I'm giving full points for that. And, like, yeah, so many historical details, and, like, I felt like I was there in New York. Oh, that's cool. Which was great. nice. Yeah. I think so, I, that goes along with the specificity of like addresses and time. Yeah, and, like mm, it gives a lot yeah, of depth cool. to the story. It's, just, <laughs> yeah, I think it was just we were expecting it to get real spooky and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so there was like, so good. Then, weird tension. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, very good story. We were engaged the whole time. We were laughing our way through and it was just like fun stuff. I, I have to say, like, Thanks for listening to that because yeah, when I was good, like I said, it's a weird story. It's very weird. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, well, wow. we'll see how it like yeah, we'll see how it pans out for viewers. So good, yeah. Go to our website now that uh, this is our third week. Jerem's now read. Uh-huh. We've all read. If you haven't had a chance to listen, go back and listen to everything, and then sign up for our newsletter. We'll be sending out an email soon where you can vote on uh, on. You'll just give stories a rating. We'll figure out some type of disclaimer for Jerem's to say, you don't necessarily have to read it as like a spooky story. (laughs) (laughs) And then also the historical efficacy. And uh, yeah, and then we'll break down those scores and uh, and we'll probably tease each other a lot. So that and on our next episode, before we unveil the uh, the prompt for next month, we're also going to go over a few things that we found that didn't make it into the stories that we wished had kind of made it into the stories. I know there's a lot of things that I found yeah. that I was like, ah, oh, man, if only I could. Like, uh, yeah, okay, Kissing Phantom. The Kissing Phantom. That's our teaser for next episode. <laughs> Don't let me forget. Oh, that's a good teaser. <laughs> the Kissing that's Phantom good. from, uh, anyway. Also, yeah. also, um, we've got to fix this story. So I'll oh, be yeah. thinking of a spooky ending to this story. And if you have the an redemption. idea for like a spooky ending to wrap this all up, maybe put that in the comments. Okay. Share it with us. We love, and we will pick the best ones <laughs> and we will share them in the final episode. That'd be great. I already have the best one. Oh my gosh. Lay it up. No, no, no. Oh, oh, okay, okay. No, it's important now. The dad drowns in coleslaw. Oh, yeah. The vat of coleslaw gets him. Stirred. Oh. Dude, that's Spooky chilling. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks for sticking with us. This is Death by Footnote. We'll see you next time. See you next week. We'll see ya. Mm-hmm.